0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Teresa of Calcutta, better known as Mother Teresa, died on September 5th of 1997, which was just the day before the funeral for Princess Diana, who had died that week on August 31st. Those two women, I was struck by an observation that Andy Crouch made recently, give us a window into the sort of polar opposite ends of the continuum in terms of one's approach to power and prominence. From historians, we learn that both Teresa and Diana were public figures who changed culture and had an impact in it. But Diana was consumed with her celebrity and her image. One of her biographers even notes how she sought the occult and astrologers to maintain her public image and her prominence. On the other hand, Teresa is known for her proximity to the powerless and to her acts of service. Now, of course, only God can give a full explanation of the spiritual state of these ladies. That's not my intent this morning. My intent is simply to observe with Andy Crouch the stark difference in this key respect their approach to power and prominence. I remember when Diana was very famous, and I remember in my own family, there was a desire, especially among many ladies in my family, to be like Princess Diana. You could look at her and think, wow, there's this idealized prominence and beauty and proximity to power and importance and prestige. But in reality, it's completely unrealistic to think that any of us would be like Diana. I mean, there's not many Prince of Wales available for us to marry. <laughs> Furthermore, the physical beauty, the public imagery, the international platform afforded to her are all things that are not replicable. But anyone could serve the powerless. Anyone could go to the lowly. So a life without recognition, acknowledgement, or prominence is available to all. And yet it's not as desirable. In today's text, Jesus will teach something he's been teaching throughout the book of Matthew. He'll speak bluntly on our fixation on prominence and power, and he'll correct it by calling us to empty ourselves, to embrace suffering, and to become even a slave for the ultimate good of others. So why don't we hear or accept what Jesus is saying? He's been saying it all through his public ministry. He's been calling us to long stretches of anonymity, long stretches of seeming ineffectiveness or worthlessness, humiliation. He's even said in Matthew 10 and 11 that we would be on the other side of the world on key issues and that we may even face suffering. So, how, when Jesus says that so directly and so repeatedly, how do we not catch it? And I think the answer in short is because of selective hearing. We fixate on prominence and power, even with good intentions. Lord, I want to advance your kingdom. Lord, I want to do great things for your cause. And yet we overlook the suffering and the self-emptying service that is bound up in that same call. So easy to do. To give an example of that, I've noticed something in my own pastoral life, and I've noticed it broadly in culture as well. If as a church we were going to have a study of a book of the Bible say, Jeremiah or Titus, and it's going to be a weeknight. Frankly, normally the interest is minimal. But if we switch the topic to something more human-centric and said, we're going to study leadership, then the interest rose. Because if you talk about how you can improve your own power and prominence, there's a market for that. There are TED Talks for that. (laughs) There are self-help seminars for that. There are management expos for that. There are all sorts of podcasts on how we can climb. But here, Jesus talks about how we can descend. And so he talks about something that is difficult for us. Like any student who first gets their yearbook and flips to find the pictures of themselves, when we hear talks about leadership, we picture our own accomplishments, whether past or future. In short, we envision ourselves as the hero. In today's text, Jesus will call us to what that actually means. It's not the first time he's spoken on prominence, so let me just say this as well. I know it's a longer intro <laughs> than normal, but in chapter 18, just two chapters earlier, remember the disciples ask, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? In that text, I preached a sermon called, How to Be the Greatest, and I think Jesus said three things. Go low like a child. Receive the lowly, who are like a child, least of rank, and then prioritize eternally. And what happens in today's text is similar. Here's what I think the difference is. In Matthew 19 and 20, Jesus has repeated this same phrase now four times. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And it's in that context that they ask, well, can I be first? See, here's what's so different about Matthew 20. In Matthew 18, they ask, who will be the greatest? And it's good to desire to be great. You just have to know what greatness truly is. But that's not what they're asking in Matthew 20. They're not asking to live a life that's great. They're asking for prominence and position. Where in Matthew 18, Jesus explained what greatness really is. Here in Matthew 20, Jesus corrects their very desire because it's misplaced. So today's sermon title is How to Be First, Greatness Revisited. So if you look in Matthew 20 with me, we'll pick up here in verse 17 as Jesus will now explain and correct their misunderstanding of what it means to be first. Matthew 20, verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and we know why he's going there. He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. Now, Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man to describe himself more than any other term. It's from Daniel seven thirteen and 14. It's the description of the one who will have an eternal kingdom. It's a description of the king of kings. That person, the king of kings with all power and all prominence, what will happen to him? He'll be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is the third time now that he's predicted that he will suffer and die. Here he lists the chief priests and the scribes, the Jews and the Gentiles. And we know just several chapters from now, the Jews will cry out, crucify him. And the Gentiles will actually crucify him. And then on the third day, he'll be raised. Now, Jesus has predicted his death three times. The first time he predicted it, Peter argued with him. The second time he predicted it, the disciples immediately asked, well, who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And now the third time that he's predicted it, two disciples and their mom asked for the right and left hand seat of the throne. I don't think I could say this strongly enough. Every single time Jesus talks about his own suffering and death, his disciples think about their own prominence. Have you ever been talking to someone? And you can tell by the glazed look on their eye, they're not listening to you. Wives, say amen. (laughs) You're speaking to someone, you can tell they're not listening to anything you're saying at all. Jesus is telling them what he's going to do on their behalf. And like Walter Mitty, fantasizing about their own adventures, right after he says, I'm going to be mocked and flogged, they think, well, that's nice, but what about me? See, Jesus predicts what we refer to as the passion, his suffering, and they come up with a plan for their own prominence. Look in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, as they're called the sons of Zebedee in chapter 4, came up to him with her sons, with James and John, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Unless you think that that kneeling is worshipful, (laughs) just listen to the request. She comes on bended knee, but not to worship, but to rise for prominence and position. She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. You might have a translation that says grant or permit, which is a poor rendering of the Greek. The Greek word apon means say, but it's actually rather strong in this context. The CSB translates it best. It says promise. Promise that these two sons of mine will receive this prominence and this position. It's a demand she's making of Jesus. Did you notice the first word in verse 20? Then she made the demand right after he has just predicted his gruesome death. At that moment she thought And her sons thought, well, what about us? Notice the self-interest in her request. These two sons of mine. And notice the prominence she wants, the right hand and the left. You're open to Matthew 20, so it won't be hard to look a few verses earlier. I want to show you where this demand came from. Look at the end of chapter 19. Where did she get this idea from? Where did they get this idea That they would be sitting on right and the left hand. What's this idea that they're pursuing of sitting on thrones? Remember, Jesus in Matthew 19 has been talking about how only by God is anything possible. Because the rich young man has just walked away. And then verse 27, Peter said, well, look at us. We've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne. Oh, okay. Now we see what they're thinking about. You who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones. Oh, okay, we see what they're thinking, right? That's not where he stopped talking. Verse 29, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or children or lands, but for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But that's not where he stopped talking. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I guess they missed that part. So with the selective hearing, they heard thrones. They didn't hear last. It's as if the whole time Jesus is talking about his imminent flogging, they're fixating on their own glorious thrones. He's talking about his impending condemnation. They're fantasizing about their imminent coronation. This exchange is even more striking because in Matthew 18, Jesus has already corrected greatness. But at least in Matthew 18, it was a question. Matthew 18, verse 1, who will be the greatest? Matthew 20, verse 21, demand that these two sons of mine will be in this position. So unlike Matthew 18, here in Matthew 20, Jesus corrects. Look in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Your desire for position and prominence is misguided and your expectations are misinformed. You don't know what it means to really be a leader in the kingdom. You don't know what it costs. So he continues by saying, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? If you're unfamiliar with biblical texts, that may sound like a strange metaphor. What does Jesus mean? Talking about drinking from a cup. But it's a common enough Old Testament metaphor for drinking the cup of wrath against sin. I'll give two biblical texts. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and He pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Stand up, Jerusalem. You who've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who've drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus says there is a cup, a cup of... Actually, that I will drink a cup of the wrath of God, a cup of suffering. Are you able to drink that cup? And how did they respond? Look in the verse. They said to him, we are able. See, to seek prominence and power requires not just arrogance. It also requires staggering ignorance. Should they not have cried out with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? We are not. Second Corinthians 2, verse 16 and 17. See, to ask to reign with Jesus is to ask to suffer. Romans eight seventeen, Second 2 Timothy 2, 12, Revelation three twenty one. As A.W. Tozer put it, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has wounded him deeply. But Jesus has already said this. Remember in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But see, the mother of James and John, and James and John had a Princess Diana vision of prominence. They saw magazine covers, a castle, a crown, and a seat next to the throne. But that's not how the kingdom works. So look how Jesus answers in verse 23. He said to them, You will drink my cup. And indeed, James and John do. In Acts 12, verse 2, James is murdered by Herod by the sword. In Revelation, we read that John is exiled. They want to be important in the kingdom. This is the cup. The cup is suffering. And they will drink the cup of suffering. But notice how his verse continues. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. This text makes even more sense if you were here last Sunday. Because in chapter 20, 1-16, Jesus told a parable of a vineyard. And all these laborers are in the vineyard. Some start at 6 a.m., some 9, some noon, some 3 p.m., some 5. And they're arguing over how much they get. And the point of the parable is God has the right to give grace as He wills. But here they're arguing well what about us what about our position what Jesus says to them essentially is this the position is the prerogative of the heavenly father not you or your earthly mother so now verse 24 and when they heard it they were indignant at the two brothers this is probably not righteous indignation as C.S. Lewis has explained it it takes pride in us to see pride in in others. And so here they're mad, but probably they're mad because they're thinking, well, we should have thought of that, <laughs> you know. How do we get in that kind of a position? Just as a by the way application the next time you're watching the news and someone is arguing about equity and they're talking about an egalitarian environment where everybody gets things the same way, understand that what they're actually arguing is, well, what about me? Which is what the ten are doing here. Now, this whole passage, I keep thinking, why James and John? Because if you've been following in Matthew, who does Jesus take with him in a special way that isn't afforded to the rest of the twelve? Who do we call the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. I mean, they're at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're already recognized by Jesus with this incredible, blessed relationship. But now they have a plan where the inner circle comes down to two. And it's just the two of them in this incredibly important position. I think that's because if you lust for prominence, you can never be prominent enough to be satisfied. So even if they're already part of the Peter, James, and John circle, that's not enough. But the other thing I was wondering the whole time I was studying this passage, who's driving whom? Is it the mother? Is it the sons? Is this one of those helicopter moms living vicariously through successful children, managing, crafting, manipulating every inch of their lives so she can make a masterpiece of her own glory? Or are these two adults in figure, but actually boys inwardly, working through their mom while standing in the background? It's interesting that the Gospel of Mark only mentions the brothers in Mark 10, 35. It doesn't mention the mom. But I think Matthew fills in this detail because the answer to my question is, is a little bit of both. Here's a mom that has a vision for those two special boys of hers. And here are two boys who have vastly overestimated their metal and vastly underestimated the cost because what they all shared in common was a false view of prominence and power. That's what makes the end of this passage so important. Jesus now answers the underlying assumption How does one really become first? So look in verse 25. Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And the Gentiles ruling at that time were the Romans. For the Romans might makes right through the use of their power. Now verse 26. It shall not be so among you. That phrase alone might be the theme of the ethics of what it means to follow Christ. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. In his kingdom, right relinquishes might. See, in his kingdom... He calls people to be servants, even more strongly slaves, to take the lowest societal class and rank. It would be laughable to give a slave the ownership of anything, the leadership of anything. And yet that's what Jesus calls for. The insignificance, the sacrifice, and the emptying that is associated with slavery. And then he climaxes with one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. Look in verse 28. Even as the son of man, remember the title for the great king of kings, came not to be served, though he alone deserves that, but to serve, though none of us deserve that from him. And to give his life a voluntary gift as a ransom, a term used in Exodus 11 through 13 to describe the blood of the spotless lamb that is spent as an offering for sin. As a foundation for the freedom of the Israelite people. As a ransom for many. Even the word for, just a small three-letter word in your Bible, is huge in its significance. It's a Greek word that's not normally used as a preposition. It means in the place of or in exchange for. So he comes as a ransom in the place of or in exchange for many. One dies, many are given eternal life. One perfect life is given, many sinful lives are rescued. One righteous one bears sin's wages. Many unrighteous ones are counted righteous. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 11, The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be counted righteous. So greatness is not achieved by trying to be first, but living To be last. Greatness is not achieved by trying to be first, but living to be last. The practical implications are endless. In our own home this week, my wife offered our children popsicles, and our four kids, one of them started to yell out, Me first. My wife said, Well, then you'll get yours last. (laughs) The practical implications of thinking, No, I shouldn't live to be first. But live to be last are endless. In our relationships, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. See, greatness is not a request that can be granted. It's a life that must be lived. Greatness is not prominence that can be sought. Greatness actually only occurs in reference to the one true hero who became the slave. In fact, this text actually isn't about our greatness. And it isn't even about John or any disciples drinking the cup. Because none of us could drink the cup Jesus drank. Matthew 26, Jesus talks about that cup just six chapters later. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember who he took with him? Peter and who else? James and John. You think they remembered this? there Jesus is sorrowful and troubled and he said my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me and the text makes it clear he was still within earshot because it says just a little further Jesus went and prayed and surely they could hear and what did Jesus pray? Father if it's possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will and when he came back what were James and John doing? sleeping sleeping so he said, could you not watch with me for one hour? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And a second time he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, that your will be done. And he came back a second time. And what were they doing still? Sleeping. And he went a third time and prayed the same words. And then Jesus drank what none of them could drink. He said to them, sleep. Take your rest. The hour is at hand for the Son of Man to be betrayed. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Yes, all of Jesus' followers in one sense should embrace a cup of suffering, but none of us can bear the cup of God's righteous wrath against our sin because we're the ones who caused it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus drank the cup he drank all of it and he was able to say it is finished so that we don't have to. Greatness is not achieved by trying to be first, but living to be last. If you received a bulletin this morning, I have just three big points on it that I think press home this passage to us. I do think it's a passage about Jesus. I don't really think it's a passage about us. So number one, greatness means Jesus is the one who is truly first, choosing to become last, so those of us who are truly last could be counted as first in Him. Our culture tells us greatness happens when you climb to be first. God says greatness happens when you go down to be last. So in a culture where we're given authority in our church or in our home or in a work, let us use that God-given authority not to be first but to be last. Let us not seek prom- promotion through what we gain. Let us be okay with demotion through what we give. Number two, greatness means Jesus drinking the cup. Not exploitation, but self-emptying. Exploitation is when you use your authority or power in such a way that increases your authority and power and protects you from ever being vulnerable. Philippians 2, 6-7 through 7 says the exact opposite about jesus it says let this mind be in you which is also in christ jesus who being god thought being god not something to be grasped but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion of a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of a cross so jesus took his power and exchanged it for vulnerability He took his prominence and exchanged it for a cross. As we take communion this morning, remember that the cross was the most shameful and embarrassing possible way to die. Victims on a crucifix were stripped of all their clothing, unlike many of the paintings and statues you've seen. And they were done so to make them vulnerable and embarrassed. It was meant to humiliate them. Imagine the humility then it took for God the Son to come and die in that way. Here he is being crucified by the very hands he knit together in those mother's wombs. Here's the shepherd being slayed by sheep. Sheep that can't even find the way if not for the shepherd. Number three, greatness then is trusting what the Heavenly Father grants rather than what you, your parents, your mother, or your influences demand. James, John, and their mom said, this is what we deserve. Jesus said, let God grant what he will. I love how Philippians 2 ends. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The Father did grant. And the Father granted because Jesus did not exploit his power, but emptied himself of it. And the Father lifts him to greatness. This morning, when you think about what you want to bring before the Lord, Lord, say this for my life. Lord, do this for my life. I want to encourage you to cry out instead for mercy. The most important thing you can say to the Lord this morning is that I confess Jesus as Lord. And I bow my knee now. And my tongue confesses today. And therefore I only ask for mercy. That's why Matthew 20 ends with two blind beggars on the side of the road. Not requesting for the right and left hand of the throne, but just begging for mercy. The contrast is meant to show us. Greatness is not achieved by trying to be first, but living to be last. So after two chapters of Jesus repeating the same phrase, the last will be first and the first will be last, the takeaway for us is don't worry about if you're first or last. Concern yourself with being faithful to please the Father. And this morning as we take communion and we drink the cup, remember that we do it in remembrance of the only one who truly drank the cup. The cup not merely of suffering, but the cup of God's righteous wrath against our sin. And praise God that he drank all of it. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, I thank you so much that while James and John were sleeping, Jesus Christ wrestled in the garden of Gethsemane and humbled himself to the most humiliating and awful death imaginable for the God who had created the world. Frankly, we're in the same position. We have aspired, we have desired, we have craved what is not ours to desire or aspire or crave. We've lusted to be seen a certain way, to have a certain recognition, acknowledgement, and position. We've thought, what about me, when you were trying to tell us about what you were at work doing? And like James and John, we're asleep, dead in our sin. When in fact, Jesus is going to the cross to pay for it. So this morning as we take communion help us to remember with incredible gratitude that there is one who drank the cup and drank it all the way down to the bottom. He bore the wrath that all of our sin has accumulated. And if we will simply confess Him as Lord, then we can sing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise Jesus for that. Lord, perhaps someone this morning needs to finally confess Jesus as Lord and bow their knee. But perhaps even as Christians, we've been having a James and John moment where we've been thinking, well, Lord, what about me and what about my position and what about my life and what about my prominence? And it's good for us to be reminded that the spotlight belongs on Jesus. And so help us to hear Him and follow Him and trust that the Father will grant what the Father will grant. And it will always be best and it will always be right. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraligh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com